Hello, and thank you for tuning into Answers from the Lab, where we share Mayo Clinic knowledge and advancements on the state of testing and science from laboratory leaders and the people who are making it happen behind the scenes. I'm Dr. Bobby Pritt, the Chair of the Division of Clinical Microbiology in the Department of Laboratory Medicine and Pathology at Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. With me today is Dr. Bill Maurice, the Chair of the Department of Laboratory Medicine and Pathology at Mayo Clinic and the President of Mayo Clinic Laboratories. This is our weekly discussion with Dr. Maurice in which we learn about updates in the field of laboratory medicine and pathology. Hi, Bill, how are you this week? I'm doing great, Bobby, how are you? Good, I just got back from sunny California and of course now it's 20 degrees today, so I'm wondering what's going on in Minnesota. Yeah, well, I just got back from <laughs> sunny northern Minnesota, so I got, I'm warmer here. It was eight <laughs> degrees yesterday where I was, so it's, I'm going the other direction on the thermometer. Wow. Yeah, I guess this is warm for you. Okay. Well, I don't feel so bad then. There you go. So what's on your mind this week? Well, you know, I've been thinking about all the talk that we've been hearing about lab-developed tests. We've talked a lot about the regulation and some of the upcoming roles with valid versus vital, but I thought it'd be good to just talk a little bit about what a lab-developed test is and why they're important, since obviously there are a lot of people interested in these tests. Well, yeah, I mean, it's very timely. I'm sure you heard about a lot of new things last week at the national meeting for the United States the Canadian Association of Pathology. To your point, too, there's a real misconception, I think, out there, or just lack of understanding or maybe a combination of both about yeah. what exactly lab-developed tests are. I mean, you, you hear things like tests developed in a garage kind of a, a <laughs> sentiment, right? Or I think homebrew is a name that's been out there that kind of connotes that sort of term. like it's a very right. casual thing, but it's really not. So yeah, I think it's a great topic to discuss. And of course, very much so for you, because I think you guys are doing a lot of this in Clint Micro because of the nature of your profession, right? Yeah, absolutely. We really do. And it's probably a good thing to mention that it has been an evolution over time. It used to be that lab-developed tests didn't necessarily have much standardization, but there is so much quality control associated with them. The lab accreditation process inspects labs and reviews any of the lab-developed tests and validation packages. And so just the quality is that set at such a high bar. I'm not sure people completely understand that. But then also, let's just get back to why do we even do these? Because obviously, it's a, a big undertaking for the lab. So in clinical microbiology, here at Mayo Clinic, we've had lab-developed tests since our inception, of course. But for the past 30 years, we've been doing a type of test called a PCR for potentially life-threatening pathogens that there were no commercial options for. So really, lab-developed tests arose out of necessity. And I'm sure it's the same in your world, Bill, in, in hematopathology. Yeah, well, I think if you get back to the why, the why really is because patients present with conditions that as providers, we really struggle to understand what they have and mm -hmm. therefore even how to approach treatment or informing the patient. So for me, for instance, my background in, in research was in TNA and case cell biology. And so I got interested when I was in training as a resident about how we could take some of the things we understood about those cells from, the, from my research experience and bring those into the clinical environment to diagnose leukemias of those cell types, which at that time in the mid-90s were very much of interest, but there were very few tools to tell a patient if they even had a condition of one of these cells, and if so, what it was. And so that's really what I worked on uh, using flow cytometry as a platform. It was the answered, unanswered question. 
and it really did spawn. So it really is around patient need. And, and there's just a lot of these conditions. Look, it's expensive and very resource intensive for a company like a manufacturing company, like a Thermo Fisher or Roach or any of them to bring these tests to FDA, which means there are big gaps in terms of uncommon conditions or conditions that are just so new, like with emerging pathogens that we just don't know. So, so that's really, yes. Yeah. So I have that experience as well. I think the rigor that you speak to is there was a time when things were done in a research lab and that was considered good enough. And I think with just general recognition from our profession, not just to CLIA, but also to CAP and others, that we needed more rigor than that. And there is a lot more rigor than that applied to these. Oh, absolutely. And here at Mayo Clinic, being a, a national and international reference lab, we have a number of institutions, uh, state organizations that actually review our packets. So there is a high level of scrutiny on the packet of all of the information about how we validated a test to be used for clinical testing. I think that the bar is very high with these tests and that's good for our patients, of course, twofold. First, that we're able to offer these tests, but second, that we can really ensure a high degree of quality. I'll talk about an example. You know, I like parasites, vector-borne diseases, things transmitted by mosquitoes and ticks, and I've done a lot of work on tick-transmitted diseases. And everyone's heard of Lyme disease. Of course, it's the most common vector-borne disease in North America, but there are others. And one of them is called anaplasmosis. And that is found mostly in the upper northeastern United States and the upper Midwest, right where we are. Well, there is currently still to this day, no FDA approved PCR test for the organism that causes anaplasmosis, which is anaplasma phagocytophilum. So laboratories that live in these endemic areas, like our lab, we've had to develop our own tests because that is the best way to diagnose early infection, which I should mention is potentially life-threatening. So we've actually had tests built since, um, we've had a real-time PCR for anaplasmosis since 2003. Hmm. Wow. Yeah. And it's because it's needed, right? It's, if you, as a laboratory in your lab and the people in your division, I'm sure performed all the validation, but the analytical sensitivity, the specificity, things that are, people are a lot more familiar with now with COVID, you know, and are the COVID tests specific and are they sensitive? Are they too sensitive? I mean, this was something that for the first time in my lifetime was part of the public domain debate around healthcare, which has never been, but it's really something the labs have done for, that's the way that we practice because we are a medical practice. So that's where the, the terminology like a homebrew test for anaplasmosis is really misleading, I think. I agree. And I think things will eventually change. The, it is now well recognized that real-time PCR for anaplasmosis is the test of choice. In fact, the CDC guidelines specifically called out PCR as the test of choice for diagnosing early infection. And then there's a tick-borne disease working group that was established by Congress in 2016 as part of the 21st Century Cures Act. I was part of that working group and there was unanimous consensus that PCR is the preferred diagnostic method for early anaplasmosis, which again, I'll remind you is potentially life-threatening. So you wanna diagnose it early. So maybe over time, there will be commercial tests that come out, but until then, these laboratory developed tests fill that gap and allow us to care for our patients. Yep, that's right. Now, and I think the flip side of that in fairness is that by the same token, 
We want to make sure that every lab that's developing and offering tests is following the same rigor that a Mayo Clinic or University of Minnesota or any reputable healthcare laboratory would provide, right? And there's people want that level of surety. And there has been certainly a lot of interest and investment in diagnostics because of the attention they've gotten through COVID. Most importantly, on the one side, we need to be able to continue to innovate to serve unmet patient needs. And at Mayo, in our department, over half our tests are lab-developed tests, which really reflects the nature of the practice that we serve. We have a lot of people coming to Mayo Clinic campuses from all over the world that have something that no one can tell them what they have, which means they probably have a, something that there isn't a standard test out there or an IVD-approved, FDA-approved IVD test. But flipply, flip side is people need and want to have confidence in the results that those tests provide. And we certainly saw that in the pandemic experience as well. Uh, you know, going back to serology testing, and there were just a few maybe bad actor serology tests that made it out there that really undermined people's confidence in testing. So we have to strike the right balance between promoting innovation, providing people with the answers that they need, and make sure that people can be confident in the results that they get and their providers. And that's really what we're working at. And that's why to go full circle while we're paying attention to what's going on with potential legislation is something that strikes that, that right balance. Because there's one thing I've learned in my very limited experience in the federal government is that good intentions don't always really lead to good results. So we have to stay very engaged in, kind of, in trying to educate those on what we're doing with the laboratories to support, support patient care and being good advocates for both our laboratories and our patients. Yeah, I agree. So this gets back to all of our previous talks. We're really establishing here today the need, the justification for these lab-developed tests. But there is this second need to make sure that they have the high quality that is consistent across all of the tests being performed in the United States as laboratory-developed tests. So I think it is important to have some set quality standards, perhaps some type of regulation but knowing that we want to make sure there's no unintended consequences that hurt our patients through that. So that gets back to what we've been talking about a lot is how we as pathologists, laboratory scientists, and leaders need to be at the table, That's helping right. our legislators create the right framework for accomplishing this type of LDT oversight. Yep, agreed. And the other part of it is really working within our prof profession to create the right spaces for innovation as well. Because the clinical laboratory is already one of the most regulated, if not the most regulated area in healthcare in terms of how many PEEP inspections I know we get, right, mm -hmm. uh, as a minimum. But that means that that becomes harder and harder to innovate in those environments. And that's one thing we've worked on here is how do we create innovation environments? We've done that in, in VLMP here, and as well as how do we invite in partners from the manufacturing industry as well. And maybe that's something we could talk about in another podcast is that I think the laboratory profession has to mature in its approach to innovation like other technologically intense areas of healthcare, like therapeutics. Mm -hmm. So that's something else that we could talk about maybe as part of the future of our profession that we're working on. I think that's a great future topic, Bill, is how do we continue to innovate with increasing regulation and provide those high quality tests, but perhaps partner with industry, partner with researchers to keep coming up with the new tests that are going to really move the practice forward. Exactly. All right, sounds like a great topic. There we go, we're set up. We had All right. a little on-air production meeting. That was good. Well, thanks, Bill. I hope you have a great week. Talk to you later. Sounds good. You have a great week as well. Thank you so much for tuning in to Answers from the Lab. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast and don't forget to tune in every Thursday and every other Tuesday.